Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is an individual who is passionate and driven to support and sustain oceans worldwide. She has spent years creating the world's largest network of young ocean leaders, and she has launched the world's first Oceans Solutions Accelerator to cultivate technological solutions that can address the greatest threats facing our planet and our oceans. She was recognized by Forbes 2019 as a 30 under 30 for her great success with helping and accelerating innovative solutions for ocean health. We're so honored and delighted to have the founder and CEO of Sustainable Ocean Alliance, Daniela Fernandez. Hi, Daniela. Welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Great to see you today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. You've really done some very impressive things in a very short time. You're having a huge impact on the oceans. You put together a worldwide organization in a matter of a few years, starting from your dorm room. Really just looking forward to kind of learning more about you and your experience. Tell us a little bit about your background, Daniela. How did you get interested in the oceans and your work with Sustainable Ocean Alliance? Happy to. Well, it all goes back to being born in Ecuador. If you haven't visited Ecuador, I highly recommend going to see the pristine seas, the Amazon jungle, the beauty that natural environment that Ecuador has to offer. And as a little kid, I just remember always being in awe about our natural ecosystem and wanting to be a part of it and wanting to embrace it. And then I moved to Chicago out of all places from this majestic, you know, natural ecosystem to a concrete jungle. <laughs> so you can imagine for me, the disruption that had, I remember so clearly looking outside the airplane window when I landed in Chicago and asking, where are the mountains? <laughs> where did they go? So for me, it was that love I had for the environment early on in my life that impacted me. And then when I was 12 years old, I watched Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. If you haven't seen that film or haven't seen part two, I recommend it. But as you can imagine, as a young child, I got the movie because I thought it was a movie about penguins, which are my favorite animal. But instead, the movie was about the fact that climate change is a reality and the fact that the existential crisis my generation faces in tackling this problem. So it was a very captivating yet shattering experience for me as a 12 year old kid who thought that the world was their oyster but yet now I'm encountering this fear and this reality that I felt it was my responsibility to solve somehow so going through that process I went to school took environmental science classes I raised money for my high school to get solar panels so I was very actively involved in wanting to fix this climate change crisis that I had learned about but I never necessarily knew what my role would be or how I could make a difference so that was a you know very challenging journey of just finding ways to have an impact and the other aspect that I will share is the fact that I come from an immigrant family a single mother household a low-income family and I bring that up because 
part of my journey has always been to make the tough decision of going towards something that was financially secure or doing something that was more in line with my passion and my heart and what I wanted to do with my life and protecting the planet. So I ended up going to Georgetown University and I went to Georgetown because at the time, at least I wanted to run for office. That's what I thought my solve would be to passing environmental legislation and saving the planet. My freshman year of Georgetown, I realized that instead of going down the policy route, I could instead look at ways that entrepreneurship and innovation can help our planet. So I'll pause there because the story can go on and we'll talk more about SOA, but that's a little bit of my journey and becoming passionate about the environment, having this understanding of the importance that the ocean plays and then how that shifted into this entrepreneurial pursuit. Well, it's interesting too. We see all kinds of things that happen around us, injustices, things that concern us. And yet when you saw the inconvenient truth, you responded personally. You felt like you had a personal responsibility to do something. What was it that made you feel that way, that led to you taking that ownership in that way? It was the emotional shock of thinking about everything that I loved so dearly, like the penguins and like the trees in the Amazon and like the ocean dying before my eyes. And instead of being a victim to it, I just felt like it had to be something that I did. That same day, I knew that it would become my responsibility and I would dedicate my life to helping our planet. I had no idea what that would entail, of course. But, you know, I think just to answer your question, it was that level of fear, of frustration, of anger, of all the uncertainties that were ahead of me that I just wanted to help. I just wanted to do something that would make a difference. That was clearly a defining moment for you. And many times we're inspired. You really have brought something into fruition. So when you came up with the idea of Sustainable Ocean Alliance, I understand you were 19, your college at Georgetown. Tell us about that. Sure. So I'll tell you the story of the exact moment where the catalyst for Sustainable Ocean Alliance coming to life. And that was at a UN meeting. So as a freshman at Georgetown, I was invited to attend a meeting at the UN. And I remember so clearly walking through the UN front gates and feeling out of place and yet feeling excited and feeling overwhelmed. And I entered the UN chambers and I'm looking around me and next to me, I'm sitting next to an ambassador and I see a head of state walking up in front of me to the podium. And I'm a 19 year old kid who is there because I share this passion that I have for the environment with my university. And they asked me to represent them at this meeting. But it was at that moment when I realized two things. The first thing I realized was that I was the only young person in that room and there was no sort of outlet of communication that was going to my generation. There was no Twitter feed. There was no live stream happening. All these conversations and everything I was listening to was taking place inside these closed door chamber, which I felt as if it wasn't right. As our generation is inheriting this problem, we needed to have information at hand, but that wasn't happening. So that was the first realization. And the second one was the fact that every single person that got up and walked to the podium and gave a speech, whether it be a scientist, a CEO, a world leader, they kept emphasizing on the problem. They kept talking about how in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have more plastic than fish by weight in the ocean or the fact that we're overfishing our seas. And not once did I hear anyone talk about a solution 
or hope or a blueprint or plan of action. And as I'm sitting here, I'm just at the edge of my seat wanting to hear someone say, and this is how we're going to solve this problem. And that never happened. So that was the second takeaway I had in the sense of what if I could build a platform where one, I could bring together my generation with world leaders and two, where we could all focus on solution oriented innovations and projects. And that was the time when I realized that I had to build something and how SOA came to be. It's interesting. This podcast is about taking command. It's about action and being action oriented. I continue to be impressed at just how you're sitting at the UN, you're watching this, you're waiting for someone to talk about, well, I got the problem, but where's the solution? But then you went and did something yourself. It goes back to that sense of responsibility. I remember also thinking that I could easily take a picture, a selfie at the UN and post it on social media and call it a day, which I'm sure it's what a lot of my classmates would have done. Or I could take what I had heard, which was a privilege and share it with my community, with my generation. And so for me, it was that sense of taking command of what I had seen. But it's also, again, like that level of weight that I feel on my shoulders every time I encounter something like this, whether it be an opportunity or whether it be a shock that I have. And then going back to my campus at Georgetown and deciding to put on the first ever Ocean Solutions Summit, which we hosted then next year, it really is around taking command of the vision that I had, the moment where I saw it before my eyes, what I could do. And more importantly, also knowing what I was willing to do to make it happen and the risks that I could take, the responsibility that I had in hand, and also like thinking through how can I take command of my own actions to follow that through. Were there ever times that you felt deterred? I mean, because you sound like a very determined, focused person. You've got a vision. You've got this desire. You want to make a difference. Were there things, were there obstacles or hurdles that you felt like you had to overcome to make this happen? And were any of those obstacles within yourself? Did you have fear? Did you have anything that you'd say, boy, I really had to overcome this? Oh, there were many. And I'm sure you'll hear this from every entrepreneur, but I'll start with the internal. I love to say that fearlessness is not the absence of fear, but rather it's looking fear in the eye and still having the courage to act upon it. And to me, that's what I felt. Of course, I was afraid of starting a new hub at the time at Georgetown. I was afraid of the responsibility that I had and how I could affect my schoolwork. There were so many fears that came up in my mind. But at the same time, I just also wanted to see this through because I believe in myself and having that self-awareness in me, knowing that I would put the time and effort into making this happen and that I could take the sacrifices, which meant not having that much of a social life in college, for example, not going out to parties or not, you know, socializing as much was a, a big sacrifice that I had to make. So that was the internal aspect of it is a lot of fears came up, a lot of uncertainties, but just grounding myself back into that inherent belief I have in myself and knowing that if it were up to me, like I will make it happen is what kept me going on the external aspect of it. I can't tell you how many people after I pitched them my idea or told them about this vision that I had to, for example, for our first event, I wanted to bring Secretary John Kerry and I wanted to bring Sylvia Earle, who's an amazing renowned marine biologist and the CEO of National Geographic. And everyone thought I was insane because they asked me, why would they come to you, to this university to speak to young people? And so I had a lot of people patting me in the head and saying, that's 
that's very adorable and, and good luck. Or whenever I talked about entrepreneurship and innovation, I also heard the opposition of policy will solve this. You know, what you're talking about doesn't make any sense. So I think that it was important for me to hear people out and listen to their advice and guidance while at the same time staying true to my own belief as to what would move the needle and to my own understanding of how the world could look like if my vision were to come to life. You clearly have a tremendous amount of conviction and it sounds like that conviction, that belief powered you through some of the fears you might've had. What I also love about what you're saying is you dreamt big. It wasn't enough just to say, hey, we're just gonna have a campus club. And you wanted to have something that would attract world leaders and you did. Did you have that conference and did those people come? Absolutely. Of course they did. And of every, course, single of one of, <laughs> every single one of the speakers showed up and we also broadcasted the event live to multiple U.S. embassies around the world because I not only invited Secretary John Kerry to attend, but we also had a partnership with the USA Department to make this happen. So it was one of those moments where the domino just kept falling in the sense that I have brought this vision and this need to the world. And there were so many other young people like myself who were hungry to learn more about the ocean space, who wanted to do something, but didn't have a pathway to make it happen. And really, that was the beginning of the building out of Sustainable Ocean Alliance, which is something that to me wasn't necessarily part of my job trajectory or my professional trajectory. I never set out to become a social entrepreneur or to build a nonprofit. It was the extracurricular I did in college. And then when I graduated, um, which we can talk more about, that's when I decided to make a decision of instead of going down a traditional pathway of going into finance or consulting, like my friends did with my economics and government major, I instead decided to turned down all my job offers and take this risk of building out this nonprofit. Which is an incredible risk. And it's really turned out very well. I just want to highlight, I think so many times people are afraid of things. We're afraid to dream big. You know, we're kids, we dream big. And then as we get older, sometimes we have fears. I can't do this because I think it's really amazing that you didn't let anything deter you. And I think as people listen to our podcast, what might they learn from you to overcome things within themselves that would keep them from following their dreams? I would say that being self-aware has served me so well in life because I asked myself those hard questions early on. Like, what person do I want to be? What are my values? What is the culture that I want to inspire in other people? And when I talk to my entrepreneurs now, instead of them focusing so much on their culture for their company, I tell them to start with themselves, asking themselves those really important questions that will define how they see themselves and who they want to be. And that self-awareness is key because if you don't have that foundation and knowing who you are, you can't move forward and build out your vision or whatever that vision might be. And then second of all, it also goes back to that belief in yourself, just having that confidence and knowing that if everything else fails, you'll still have the ability to rebuild yourself and, you know, move on. I have that belief in me because of my childhood and seeing my mom, who's my role model, being a single mother and working multiple jobs to get us through and to make a living. Um, I saw that the worst that could happen to me was that I would fail and I would end up, you know, having to get a job and then go from there. So 
I think knowing that I came from not much and knowing that not much could be my reality again didn't scare me in a sense. And Justin gave me the liberty to go forth and take this big risk because I wasn't afraid of coming back to nothing because I knew what the journey was like and I knew I could take those steps to get back to where I started. Well, and it's great that you did because you were able to develop something. You talked about being at a crossroads, right? And you had all these job offers, big job offers. You could have gone to Wall Street or all kinds of other places. You didn't. Tell us what happened next. Sure. So I remember walking across the graduation stage at Georgetown and you have all the emotions of being happy and excited. And all my friends had a job at that point. I had nothing. I had no job security. I didn't have any personal savings. I didn't have any funding for SOA. But what I did have is this conviction and this feeling in my heart and soul that I had to continue pursuing my dream of building SOA. And thankfully, Georgetown gave me a two-month internship to fundraise for the organization. So that was my savior in a sense that the university believed in me so much because they had seen the trajectory and the work that we have been doing with SOA that those two months after I graduated, I spent time just knocking on doors, asking foundations for funding, asking individuals for funding. And I received so many no's. That's the journey of raising capital is you get all the no's until you get that one yes. And for me, that one yes translated into, it was the last week before my internship ended. And I had an individual who was a vice president at a financial institution come to meet with me to tell me that if I were to match his capital, he would be able to give me, you know, I think at the time it was like $11,000 and I would only have to, you know, go and find the seven other matches for him. And although I was entering that meeting to have a conversation, in the back of my mind, I was ready to ask him for a job <laughs> because I had a week left to raise enough money to at least, you know, get me through the year. So it was, you know, again, that pivotal moment, like you mentioned, in deciding that I had gone through the motions to raise a capital. And now I had one week left before I was out of an internship, out of, you know, capital to sustain me. And so he came forth and he gave me the $11,000 and I took that money and matched it. So I was able to raise about $70,000 that enabled me to move out to San Francisco and actually start building out the organization. Daniela, given all of the responsibilities you have, which is significant, you're in 165 countries, you're fundraising, you're really working to make a difference, you must at times be under stress. How do you deal with stress or with the pressure of your work or your commitment when things are really hard? I really appreciate you asking that, Joe, because I believe that mental health is not talked about enough in this day and age, and especially around entrepreneurship. I've have a lot of stress. Anxiety is real. You know, I think that being in the position that I'm in, I have to make time for myself and I have to force myself to find pockets in my schedule to actually meditate, to actually, you know, take a nap or sleep early and making that a conscious effort has been very challenging because all you want to do is work or all you want to do is perform. But I've learned that if you don't take those steps and you don't act on them, you are going to burn out. And I've seen the toll that mental stress and health problems has taken upon a lot of people in the space, a lot of entrepreneurs. And so I try my hardest to feel my body and to understand when I need a break, when I need some time away, when I need to just take the evening and relax. And it goes back to hearing yourself and acknowledging uh, where you are. So I would highly recommend, um, 
meditation, not just talking about it, but actually doing it. And I say that for myself, because I oftentimes say, I'm going to meditate tomorrow. And then I have a call that comes up, but taking very concrete steps to be more strict around what will help you in your day-to-day schedule is really important. Is there something you do to hold yourself accountable? Because like you said, it's so easy to say, I'm going to exercise tomorrow. It's always tomorrow, right? I'm going to do this but then it comes and it goes. So how do you make sure that you really hold yourself to doing that? Because it really is sustaining and we need to do that. Yes, I actually do have a trick or a hack for people if you're interested. So I have this whiteboard that I look at every day and I write out the routine that I want to follow. So whether it be drinking water every hour or you know journaling or meditating and I write up the routine and then I in the column side of it, I write out each day so that I can see which days I did what. And at the end of the day, I hold myself accountable by saying, okay, today I got out 10 out of 10 because I did my 10 routines or today I did five out of 10. But just asking myself and taking account for what happened in the day and reflecting upon it is so helpful because you want to be better the next day. You want to be better than the following week, but having something that you can write down and look at every single day and that's staring at you while you're working to remind you of what you have to do is what's been helping me take those steps for my own mental health and for my own sanity. That's great. You know, it's having something visible. It's funny. I know even for myself, sometimes the things that we did as a kid, if I do something, sometimes I'll literally give myself a star or something, you know, some sort of recognition. All right, I did it, you know, so, or even having a to-do list that you cross something off. I'm going to exercise today. I'm going to meditate today. I'm going to do whatever. So I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your mom. I know you've got a great relationship with your mom. You talked about you'd gone on a trip with her recently, and it sounds like she was a real inspiration in your life and really a guide for your leadership. Yes, my mom has been everything to me. She's been a cheerleader. She's been a support system, a sister, a mother. And I know that I would not have had the courage or the ability to do what I have done had it not been for her support. I'll tell you a very brief story. When I was graduating from Georgetown and had to make the decision of either taking that corporate job or moving on with SOA, The added layer to it was the fact that my mom, unfortunately, was unemployed at the time. So not only did I have to take the decision under the circumstances of my own aspirations, but also under the fact that I was caring for my mom financially. And instead of her pushing me towards a financially stable career, which I'm sure was the logical thing to do, she instead said, follow your dreams, do what's in your heart. Everything is going to be okay. Like, we're going to figure it out. So Her having told me that made it feel okay and giving me the permission to follow my dreams instead of feeling the responsibility of having to make money was such an alleviating blessing for me, knowing that I could do this and that she would have my back and that I wouldn't feel the pressure of having to support us financially because everything was going to be okay. And just thinking back to that moment, it was one of those milestones and catalysts in my life, whereas Who knows what I would have chosen had she said, no, I'm sorry, you have to make money because we need to. And the reality is that we did need money, but, you know, we pulled through and we see each other as a team and we've always been there for each other in that way. Well, thank you for sharing that story, particularly as a parent hearing that story. It's a reminder to me of the role that we as parents, we know intuitively the huge impact we have. And yet when it comes right down to some of these important decisions, that complete love, that unconditional love, that support for our children ultimately can help them be what they're called to be. 
Yes. And even if your kids don't appear to be listening, they're always listening. There are moments in time now that I'm into adulthood that I have my mom's voice or her comments in the back of my head that I ignored or rolled my eyes at when I was a teenager. But everything she says is so real. It keeps reminding me of how to be a better person, how to be a more organized individual. So to parents, I would say, keep it up. And, you know, your work will be paid off at the end when your kid grows up and you're the voice in the back of your head helping them become a better person. Tell us about SOA today, because that was in 2014, I think, when you started that, right? When did you start SOA? So I started SOA as a freshman in 2014. And so that was, you know, very much a student-led initiative, but I formally launched SOA as a nonprofit in 2017 when I ended up moving to San Francisco. And now we have young people in over 165 countries. And so this means that we have young people actively working on the ground, building grassroots projects, whether it be planting coral reefs or planting a mangrove forest, just restoring the ocean. And we've also made investments in 45 ocean technology companies. So these are the solutions that I was looking for back at the UN. Innovations that are mapping out the ocean floor because we know more about space than we know about the ocean or innovations that are using seaweed as an alternative to plastic. There are so many innovations that are in the pipeline. So we've invested in them, we've supported them, we've given them access to mentorship and a support system. And then the other exciting thing for me is the fact that now we have about 30 employees. So I have a team, whereas in the past it was just me having my hand in everything. And now I actually have an incredible um, support system and a team that is helping me deploy this vision. And those 30 people, you and those 30 people, as you said, I mean, you've got thousands of people around the world. Part of what you're doing, I know, is leadership development. Part of what you're doing is incubating technology-related ocean startups. It's a pretty incredible vision. And it would seem like in some way you're just beginning. Where do you want to see this go? I see our 6,000 young leaders and What I see in them is myself because they're all going through the journey that I started off when I was 19. And this is why I built the organization because I wanted to give other young people the model. I wanted to give them the network and the ecosystem and the funding they needed to take their ideas and bring them to life in a way that is much faster than what I had to go through. So for me, the the next few years, I see this being a movement, a movement in that we are changing the way that people interact with the ocean. We are making it their livelihoods. We are promoting this sense of responsibility and ownership. And instead of young people, or honestly, any person for that matter, feeling like they're a victim to what's happening to our climate crisis or simply having the means to protest or donate, we want to send the message that you can take your skills, your passion, whatever it is that you have to give and put it towards building something new or join a project or join a startup that is looking to transform the way we do business. Because at the end of the day, we can change these very harmful business models that are destroying or exploiting our ocean or our planet, and we can transform them and re-engineer them into sustaining and regenerating our planet that's when we're going to see real progress. And that's the vision that I have is just seeding all these different ideas and technologies and enterprises that can then be the next Fortune 500 companies, be the next companies that are making a lot of money, but at the same time, they're having that triple bottom line of return of profit and also of planetary support. And so that's my vision for the future. Well, you've got an incredible vision. You also have incredible passion, the conviction, the belief, the energy that you bring 
And sometimes we know that that's not enough, right? I mean, we've got to influence other people. We've got to inspire other people. What would you say your secret has been to creating this movement, to taking your idea and your passion and working with other people? Talk about the role that other people have played and how you've inspired others. I would say that my secret weapon is vulnerability. And when I say that, I mean in the sense that I've never been one to say that I have all the answers. I've always been the first person to ask for help because I was never taught how to be a CEO, how to fundraise, how to build this global organization. But I have this army of mentors and advisors and supporters who have always had my back and who I can just pick up the phone and call right away if a question comes up. And to me, that's the reality of any new innovation or any new idea that comes to life is you need that community. And the same thing goes for our young leaders. I've been able to inspire them because I've given them the resources and that support system they need to question themselves, but yet to find answers. And that's why it's been such a blessing to see the growth and the scale of the organization because everyone wants to be a part of something. And when you empower people to follow through their dreams and you support them, that's when magic starts to happen. And that's what we see in the eyes of all of our young leaders and entrepreneurs. They have similar visions, but if it weren't for a platform like SOA, who knows if they could pursue those visions? Who knows if they would have to take that regular consulting job that um, I also had to be confronted with. So it goes back to being vulnerable and being able to be real with yourself and with others and asking for help when you need it. I mean, you're talking about vulnerability. Is there a time when that really crystallized for you when you were in a situation with someone or you had a time where you were vulnerable and you really realized that that could be, as you said, a superpower? I would say looking back at all the risks I've taken (laughs) in my life. And also with SOA, one of the stories that I'll share with you is it was just me all of 2017 and the beginning of 2018 until I found my colleague, Craig Dudenhofer, who is now our chief innovation officer, who joined SOA as a volunteer. I didn't have enough funding for him. And at this time, I was running very low on capital. And the reality was that not only was I supporting just myself, but I also had promised the European Union to put on this big conference in Malta to bring 200 young people to Malta. And so it was an undertaking that I had to take on for myself. You know, I had to continue raising capital and I had this individual who was a volunteer expecting to get paid someday. So you can imagine the level of stress (laughs) I felt in having that burden on me. So I had to be very vulnerable and transparent with Craig and tell him where I was and what was happening. And his reaction was, let's do this together. I'll come with you to Malta. I'll put this on. So he came out. We have another volunteer come out. And the reality was that we had such incredible plans and the fact that we shared them so openly and so vulnerably with our funders, we were able to receive, you know, some funding to go out to Malta. And, you know, I share this story because at Malta itself, I also announced that we would be starting this accelerator program. And mind you, we didn't have any money at the time, but it was, again, this like conviction and this idea that I have that it would come to fruition, it would come to life that enabled us to make that happen. And by the end of the year, I was fundraising, I was looking for, you know, ways to bring in capital. And I found this individual called the Pineapple Fund, 
that was an individual who was giving away um, millions of dollars to nonprofits in this space. And I emailed this individual and it was, again, very vulnerable, open heart email saying, I have this vision, this idea, this is who I am, this is what I want to do. And I asked him for a million dollars to make this happen. And the next thing you know, I kid you not, (laughs) I get an email back from him the next day saying, Daniela, I love your vision. Here's a million dollars in Bitcoin at the time to, you know, put forth towards SOA. So (laughs) it was the journey of potentially SOA coming to an end because I didn't have much to being open with someone and having him support me in the summit all the way to now getting a million dollars that I was able to um, continue our journey through 2018 and beyond. What a great lesson too, right? You don't get, if you don't ask, you were bold in what you asked for and felt maybe like you had nothing to lose, right? Absolutely. And I think that for me, it's having the bold aspiration, but yet knowing the follow through that you have to put forth and being able to challenge status quo. I never take anything as it is. I rather want to look at the world differently and challenge the world to build a better place instead of settling for what is. So I think it's that vulnerability and also that curiosity and the intellectual desire to shift things and make them better that has always driven me, you know, in this journey. Awesome. Daniela, how would you define leadership? What does leadership mean to you in a sentence or two? I would define leadership by the ability to uplift and empower individuals to share your vision and to go on the journey together. And it's been such an amazing experience to see SOA enable that for others. Because now when I look back, I'm thankful that I built SOA because I see how many lives it's changed. I see how many projects it's been a catalyst for. I see how much funding has gone into the ocean technology space because SOA exists. And that's been the leadership lesson that I've received in the sense that it's about empowering other people to be the best version of themselves and making sure that you can put all of your weight and support and all the lessons you've learned behind them. So Daniela, I know that you have read Dale Carnegie, that Dale Carnegie has had an impact on your thinking and tell us about that. I would love to talk a little bit about my experience reading Dale Carnegie. I remember I got the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People at a very early age. And I've been studying that book for a long time. I have notes on it and scribbles from when I was in high school and college. And I picked it up over a vacation recently. I love that we're doing this interview because that book has had such an incredible influence in my life and just the practicality of the lessons that are taught through the book and the way that it makes you think about your future and the way that you could always look to improve yourself and how to speak better, how to put yourself forward in a better outlook and how to influence people in a way that is congruent with your own values. To me, that's been just such an amazing lesson that I've taken with me throughout my entire career. And I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't read that book among the other books that Dale Carnegie has put out to check it out because it has been one of those continuous study books that I hold on to. Well, it's great to hear that. Certainly it is an invaluable resource. And so many people talk about how the book or the courses have touched their lives. So thank you for sharing that. Who is someone who's inspired you to be the best leader you can be? I would say that I have a lot of mentors that have come in through my life and someone who's inspired me. Um, his name is Tim Shortfager. He's a former CEO of Nuveen Investment, and he's been just my mentor, my rock. And 
he's inspired me so much because he's always told me to invest in myself. He's always guided me in the sense of reminding me of the value that I have and the value that I have to give and also reminding me to be comfortable in uncertainty. And I think those two life lessons have just sunk so deep and I'm constantly reminding myself and my entrepreneurs because one, investing yourself doesn't mean that you're being selfish, doesn't mean that you're not like thinking about others, but it means that you're putting your best foot forward. You're investing in your mental health. You're investing in yourself so that you can be that person for other people. And then the other lesson he taught me around being comfortable in uncertainty, it's so challenging to be comfortable and be okay and not knowing what's going to happen next. But for me, it's, I thrive in uncertainty. I thrive in chaos. That's why I don't have a traditional job where everything is structured and I know that the pathway forward, but really working on that comfort has been a challenge, but it's also enabled me to have the role that I have today as an entrepreneur. So you thrive on uncertainty. Certainly change can be something that people respond to differently. Many people fear change. They resist change. Any advice for people who don't thrive on uncertainty? I would say it roots back to understanding who they are and who they want to be. I think that many times we put ourselves in the position of change because we believe that other people you know, want to see us that way, or we put too much weight on what other people think or what they feel. So I really do think that if you're going to put yourself in that position, you have to be ready to, you know, go all in and you have to prepare yourself and, you know, do study whatever you need to study to make that change or invest in yourself in whatever way possible. But I truly do believe that it goes back to knowing who you are, knowing your intentions, knowing where you want to go in life that will help you get through those challenging times. Because if you're rooted back to your heart and to your soul and to, you know, your gut telling you that it's the right thing to do, then it's going to be easier than you not necessarily knowing why you're taking that next step or why you're deciding to, you know, make change happen. It's funny. I've talked to many, many amazing leaders around the world. And a lot of them say what you just said, which is that first, we really have to be clear about our values, our principles, and the things that guide us you could talk about it in terms of purpose. I mean, you have a clear purpose, something you're really committed to because that's so clear and so tangible to you. You're willing to push through anything else really to help make that happen. Exactly, exactly. And it's purpose. And, you know, I don't like saying follow your passion because for me, it wasn't a passion. It was a fear that I had. It was a frustration that I had. So find something that frustrates you and find something that you want to fix and something that you can see a better world, something that you can look at and say, I can change this with my skill set and with my talent that I have, just redefining the way that we say, follow your passion and to, you know, follow what makes you tick, follow what excites you. You can make money out of anything these days and age, you know, through the internet. It's just a matter of how you want to define your life and how you want to define success. It doesn't have to be through the eyes of social media or through the eyes of other people. It has to be through your own eyes because every day you wake up, like I do, I'm just so thankful and excited to do this work, but it really comes down to knowing in your heart what is right for you. Well, and in your case, it even goes back to just that experience you had when you were 12 and you really had this fear about what would happen to our planet and to our oceans if 
things continued as they happened to. So as you said, it's not just passion, but for you, it was also an impetus, a purpose, a drive, a conviction to really make a positive difference. Absolutely. And now we need so many more people to enter the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and of working for companies that are doing good for the planet. So we're entering this transformation in society where thankfully being an environmentalist or having a passion for saving the planet isn't necessarily a narrow scope. Now it's becoming the norm. So I invite all of the folks listening to think about what role they want to play in this world and what part of history they want to be in, in terms of how they're dedicating their lives and what they're doing on their day to day to either serve the protection of our planet or to harm it. So I think that reality is becoming more define and more crystal clear for people that it is a choice that you can make. And if they want to get involved with Sustainable Ocean Alliance, how do they do that? You can join at soalliance.org. We're always looking for mentors. So individuals that have a skill set and expertise that they want to share with our young leaders or entrepreneurs. If you're a young person listening, you can join our leadership program. If you're an entrepreneur that has an idea that will help the ocean in any way, shape, or form, you can also join us. And I'm also able to be reached at, at, at DV Fernandez on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Danielle, it's been a terrific interview. Is there anything else you'd like to leave for our listeners? The last thing that I'll just say is how important it is to be fearless in this day and age and to be fearless by embracing fear, by knowing who you are, but also by staying true to your heart and your beliefs and knowing that it's going to be okay at the end of the day, because you're the one who's chartering the course of your own life. And we in the back of our minds even know what's best for us. So I'll leave it at that. And thank you for um, this amazing opportunity. Awesome. Well, Danielle, thank you so much. It's been great to have you here. I know everyone's going to love this uh, interview and I wish you the very best. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening. And we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.